0: and bring your beverage uh, with you, and uh, as you are coming back into your seats, I want to ask you a question. How many of you remember your driver's test? Okay, some of you remember. It's one of those events that kind of sticks out in your mind in many ways, doesn't it? Now, for some of you, this is going to be stretching way too far back to remember your driver's test, and for others, uh, it's going to be a fresh experience in your mind. So, Betty, I wasn't mentioning your name. You don't have to take it personally. <laughs> the, um, that experience, I, when I took my driver's test, I was living in suburban Toronto at the time. And as a teenager, just like here in BC, there's this kind of graduated process that you go through, right, to get your, your driver's test. And I can remember so clearly as a 15-year-old, the anticipation And I went down and I got the little booklet, like the crisp little booklet that had all the rules and the driving instructions and everything in it. And I flipped through it and it had all the pictures of what to do and all of the signs in it that you were supposed to learn and to know how to convert miles into kilometers per hour, how all of these things, official procedures at four-way stops, all this stuff, and all kinds of other fascinating pieces of safe driving information. And I read it and I reread it, and I analyzed it, and then I went in to take the written portion of the test, and I passed, just barely, but I passed. And so naturally, as soon as I passed and found out that I passed, I thought I knew everything that there was to know about driving because I had read the booklet on driving, and so I had it all locked up here, ready... At a moment's notice, as soon as I turned 16 and someone, probably my parents, would let me behind the wheel of a real car, everything that was up here was just going to click instantaneously for me. Now, I don't know what your experience was, but I also remember then vividly my first experience getting behind the wheel of an actual vehicle as I pulled out of the licensing office several months later, only to realize that... Now, like my head knowledge, I had to put it to the test in situations that may or may not have come up in the book. And I couldn't actually just sort of tape the book to the dash and flip through it to see if this situation in front of me was in the book or not in the book. I couldn't drive with it kind of flipping from page to page to make sure that what was in my book and what had been translated into my head was accurate to what was happening in front of me. And so I remember then that struck a little bit of fear in my heart because I had to figure out the way that the book was going to apply to real life situations and how what was in my head was going to have to inform my reflexes and my decision making and my operation of an actual motor vehicle. And it took some time, and some would say that it still has taken some time for me to work out my driving progress. But eventually, I hope anyways, that I've moved kind of to this place where something that I know intellectually, the category how to drive or safe driving, is something that now I experience instead of it just being a mental category for me. Maybe, maybe learning to drive wasn't like that for you. Maybe it came much more naturally for you. But maybe you can identify with a situation where something that was apparently clear to you in terms of information or was theory, maybe in school for you, took a little while to kind of work itself out in practice. I think people that are uh, in the helping professions, medical or counseling or otherwise, go through this. Things have to become a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more um, dynamic than just looking through the DSM, flipping it up and going, yeah, it looks like you got four out of these ten. I think this is what you have. There's real people that you're interacting with and details of their lives that are now coming at you They become more than just a diagnosis but a real, live individual in front of you. Teachers in training go through this experience. I had lots of ideas about classroom management before someone put me in a room with 18 8-year-olds. Then my theories on classroom management kind of went out the window when they were kind of face-to-face with a bunch of 8-year-olds trying to pay attention to what I was saying about subtraction. Other professions have this, and maybe you can think of examples from your life, whether real estate or, or tax or accountants. You move through your first difficult legal extrication, and that which you knew on paper now gets really messy and complicated and becomes a reality to you, As you have to live and work it out in the settings in which we find ourselves in day-to-day life. And so today, I'm gonna try and weave two things together that I held in my head as interesting pieces of information into a synthesis that will call us hopefully to reflection and action. Because part of the goal of our time together on Sunday mornings is to get each of us really in significant ways to move things that we might know to be true in our heads down into this place in our hearts where they move us to act in obedience to what it is that God is speaking to us. It's that long and challenging journey, maybe the most difficult journey in the world, the 12 inches it takes to get something from me from my head into my heart. So I'm going to pray as we look into God's word uh, this morning, and then we're going to spend some time uh, together uh, dialoguing around uh, the text of Psalm 10. So let's pray together this morning. God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the way in which uh, it speaks truth into our lives and into our world. And we thank you for the way in which we've already interacted with your word as it's been sung and as we have given voice to it, God. And so I pray now as we look into your word in Psalm 10 and we think about our world and the state of our world, God, that you would gift us with eyes to see and hearts that are inclined towards obedience. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, last weekend, uh, we started our series together in the Book of Psalms, and Jared Crosley launched us into it, and we'll be here for six weeks together, and the title of this series is Taste and See, A Journey Through the Psalms. And the reason we have all these different vignettes up is that in some ways they're representative of different uh, categories or experiences in our lives. Sometimes we're in very dry, dry places, sometimes we're in... Uh, places where there's lots of lots of refreshing uh, water found, and the Psalms really is a, a patchwork, a, a category uh, for us to try and wrap our minds around some of these experiences in our lives. And so, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 10 this morning, and grab your Momentum journals and pull them out. There's a place to take notes there if you like, and you're that type of person. Uh, you can follow along on your Uversion app that you have on your smartphone. But as I was saying earlier this morning, one of the challenges that we face is to take something that we've learned intellectually and to work it out in the context of a real world setting. And as a a young student of theology in my undergrad, I remember being introduced to the Psalms, uh, this wild and unruly book of ancient Hebrew poetry and songs that didn't follow the rules, that uh, seemed to work pretty well for me in other parts of the Bible. There was one category of psalm in particular that really frustrated me and that I couldn't really wrap my head around. I mean, it was intellectually interesting to study it and think about it, but I had no practical use for this type of psalm whatsoever. My teacher called it an imprecatory psalm which I didn't really know what that meant, but apparently an imprecatory psalm is a psalm where, like, the author calls down curses upon the head of the person that they're writing about and asks God to kind of kill them, punish them, and or drag them away, or all of the above. Personally, I kind of preferred the peaceful psalms, like Psalm 23, the nice, calm psalms that talked about, you know, quiet waters and gentle streams and stuff that was really easy to kind of turn into worship songs and market to the masses and make lots of money. The imprecatory psalms were a bit of a mystery to me because the imprecatory psalms basically you are asking God to rain down his judgment on the head of somebody who deserves it. And they remained an intellectual curiosity for me until about three weeks ago when I spent... Two weeks in Africa on the ground, walking and listening to families whose worlds have been turned upside down uh, by the violence and cultural prejudice that is so deep seated in East Africa that res- has resulted in the murder of innocent children and people being attacked in their homes. And even on Wednesday, again, we got another email saying, Still happening. An attack happened while we were there in a part of the country that we didn't visit and have just heard about now upon coming home. And so when I came face-to-face and toe-to-toe with local witch doctors who were involved in the process of um, taking orders for uh, body parts of people with albinism so that they could make this into a potion for their wealthy clients so that their wealthy clients could get reelected. Suddenly, I had a use for the imprecatory psalms in a very different way. And I realized, again, that when I need words, I don't know about you, but when I need words for a deep experience, I tend not to go to the Pauline epistles. I tend to go to the psalms. And most often through history, people have gone to the psalms because they provide a voice a depth a language for us that gives voice to experiences of struggle and challenge and heartache and worship and ecstasy and celebration and all kinds of realms of emotion and experiences that sometimes i'm not as familiar with feelings of anger feelings of horror feelings of hope and and longing These are themes that stray off the path of well-worn suburban life. Which is why maybe I love the other kind of psalm. Because I want it to fit my experience a little bit more. And when I read the imprecatory psalms, or used to, I'd read them kind of on the surface. And they were curious to explore, but then I'd kind of move on from a cursory reading of it. But the psalms for me, have become a good roadmap into some of those deeper places in my heart. And so as I was preparing uh, a few months ago to go to Tanzania, in a momentum journaling reading, I stumbled across Psalm chapter 10. And this psalm became emblematic for me of my time in East Africa because it's not a neat and tidy psalm at all. In fact, it it shakes me. It shook me from my disinterest and general platitudes and thoughts that I had about Africa. And it drilled down into my soul and provided a framework for staring evil right in the face. But it does it in a very unusual way that isn't readily apparent in the translations that we have here in English. And so if you look in your Bible... If you look in the Psalms, most of the Psalms in the early portion have a little heading at the top of it, right at the beginning of the chapter. In my Bible, it's italicized, and usually it's like a little direction or instruction kind of for Jared when he's going to lead this Psalm, you know, in the team. Sing it in this key, or this is the, the tune that you should sing this Psalm to, or this is the time when it would be appropriate to sing this song. This is for the choir or this one is for you know the such and such a person to sing to be sung to this particular tune. But if you look at Psalm chapter 10, there's actually no heading at the top of Psalm 10. There's no musical instruction or anything. And that's actually because Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 in the original Psalter were one unit in the ancient Hebrew songbook. And they were actually written as an acrostic. If sometimes you look at the Psalms and you think, they're a little jumpy. I feel like this verse doesn't flow very well to the next verse. Well, Psalm 9 and 10 were written as an acrostic in the Hebrew alphabet. So uh, the first verse of Psalm 9 starts with like the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then verse 2 starts with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then verse 3 starts with the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And kind of goes through the whole of Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 and the whole of the Hebraic alphabet. And so some of that disjointedness is actually because the authors trying to knit this together in, in Hebrew, you read it makes perfect sense to them, made perfect sense to the first hearers and listeners and singers. To us, we kind of think, I don't know, why did you jump from that topic to the other? It seems a little bit weird. But it's tough to kind of gather that acrostic and kind of force it to fit an English translation with our alphabet. So the, the work of the translators here has been to try and just give us the ideas that they were trying to express in this ancient psalm. And so in the interest of time, I'm not going to focus on Psalm 9, we'll focus on Psalm 10, but Psalm 9 really sets the stage for Psalm 10 by praising God, reminding people that are singing it and reading it about all of the things that he's done in history and in their lives, reminding them about God's character, that he is just and that he's true, and that his righteousness will endure. And then Psalm 10 begins on a very, very different note. And in order to understand why this psalm became important to me, I have to understand a little bit of my history with the people that uh, Don, who's here today, and Peter, Ash, whom you've heard and is connected with us here at Jericho, and other members of the team are connected with, and that is persons with albinism, or, or PWAs. So my introduction to, to persons with albinism came about eight years ago when I first met Peter, and uh, in Walnut Grove, and then he and his wife, Debbie, became uh, connected with us here at Jericho Ridge, and we chatted a, chatted a few times casually. And um, then Peter began the labor-intensive process of educating me about the differences of persons with albinism, and what that meant, and what, it, what it, uh, his experience of it was, and what the experience of other people in different parts of the world were. So at the risk of oversimplification, Albinism is a genetic condition that exists in, in every race uh, in the world in every nation of the world it 's particularly prominent in East Africa, particularly up around Lake Victoria, which you can see on the map uh, borders uh, Rwanda, uh, Burundi, uh, Tanzania, the DRC, and uh, Kenya just to the north of, of tanzania and um, Albinism results in a lack of melanin in uh, people 's skin, and so you were seeing some of those pictures earlier scrolling during coffee and connection time, he we thought, well, some of those kids don't look very African. Their features might look African, but they actually have no pigmentation in their skin uh, whatsoever. And uh, so in our culture, that's something that can be managed. You know, Our weather certainly lends itself well to that. But in East Africa, kids that grew up with albinism don't know That they haven't, because they have no pigment in their skin, they're exposed to the rays of the sun continuously there, obviously, being an equatorial country. And so the rates of skin cancer there are astronomically high because kids just don't know, and families just don't know that if you have no melanin in your skin, you're going to get skin cancer. And most PWAs in Tanzania die, the life expectancy is about age 30 to 35 because of skin cancer. That's entirely treatable and preventable. Uh, And so one of the things that we asked you to do as we were getting ready to go, was to send us with a good supply of sunscreen and hats uh, for distribution to persons with albinism in Tanzania. And so wherever we went and interacted uh, with kids, every kid got a big old bottle of sunscreen, every kid got a wide brimmed hat that was gonna cover them, not just a baseball cap, all the way in the back, all the way in the front, and the long sleeve um, clothing that you guys brought was perfect. And so that's continuing to be distributed all throughout uh, the country of Tanzania uh, to little kids like this who need to know that they can get protected from the rays uh, of the sun. And this lack of, of melanin in uh, their skin, also in their hair and in their eyes, the other challenge for persons with albinism is that their eyes don't develop in utero like maybe yours and mine have. And there's a, the genetics actually form so that people with albinism have low vision. Not low vision, and low vision isn't... I, can't be corrected by glasses. It's not that I have low vision because I can't see you when I take my glasses off. Uh, I just have, I'm uh, myopic. But low vision, in the true sense of the word, that they, it challenges seeing what's in front of them. So here in North America, again, we can get some fancy glasses and all kinds of things that can help people with that. Uh, But if life in North America for a person with albinism is challenging, you can imagine what life in a village out in Tanzania would be like. And so that's why we did low vision clinics when we were there. There was a a low vision specialist, very hard to find, but God uh, brought Peter and uh, Dr. Uh, Rebecca Kammer in touch with each other. She's from California. So she flew and met us there. And we did eye exams uh, for kids with albinism and low vision and tried to fit some of them uh, with uh, devices that could actually aid them in seeing the blackboard and actually participating in education. It was an amazing, amazing process to be a part of. But what was shocking to me as I came to learn a little bit more about albinism was one night I was watching TV uh, and I saw Peter on 2020 saying that people in, albinism, people in Tanzania with albinism were being killed for their body parts, being hunted down because of witchcraft and because of ancient beliefs that they were non-persons, because they were different than others Uh, They were uh, zero-zero, which is a Swahili term for ghost, very derogatory term. And so because they believed that they weren't people, then their arms and legs were being cut off, they were being attacked, dragged out of their houses in the middle of the night because they were just considered non-persons. And witch doctors and others in all over East Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa were trafficking in body parts of people with albinism is because they believed that if you could capture that essence of them, if they were a ghost or a spirit and you captured that, then you had special and unique powers, which to me was unthinkable. Like, I, I just, I couldn't wrap my mind around that and how it could happen. And to Peter, it was even more unthinkable as a person with albinism because he's thinking, well, if I was born in Tanzania... A, I'm over 35, so I'd be dead by now. And B, my life would be a risk every day of my life if I grew up in a rural setting there. And so Peter's a bit of an activist, which is, and he just got on a plane and uh, went over there in 2008 and got in touch with the, the BBC uh, bureau chief there who had gone undercover, Vicki Antetema, who's been here. She spoke at Jericho Ridge a few years ago, and you'll meet her again this fall, likely when she's back here. But uh, she went undercover to expose this. And Peter saw this on TV, which is kind of what uh, piqued his interest in it anyways. Got on the plane, flew over, met with Vicky, and said, what are we going to do? And the two of them said, I don't know, we've got to do something. And God just began to stir in both of their hearts a desire to work for justice and for peace in Tanzania. And so now a few short years later, they put together an organization called Under the Same Sun, whose purpose is to reduce discrimination and end the attacks and killings of persons with albinism. And so under the same sun, I got to meet all their staff that work on the ground over there, pray with them, support them in that way. Uh, They work uh, hard at advocacy there, whether it's Peter going to speak at the United Nations um, or whether it's Peter engaging our government here in Canada to develop an official position on the killings in Tanzania. Uh, through media work here in North America or in Tanzania to try and raise awareness. And so they have a team over there that works day and night on the ground uh, in these areas to try and raise awareness, to teach teachers about what it means to have kids with albinism in your class, uh, to work with educators and the government and all kinds of different organizations. And one thing that we had the privilege to do is uh, we got to tour with a documentary film Uh, that was produced a few years ago called White and Black. And uh, so this this film talks about and unmasks what's happening and unmasks uh, the witch doctors in particular. And so here we were just a a little ways outside of uh, the city of Mwanza in the lake region where we were staying. And we drove right out. And we drove right into the heart of this city of Magu. Magu, geographically, is about the same size as Langley. There's a 1,000 practicing witch doctors in Magu. And we drove right out into the heart of it and showed this film, White and Black, Crimes of Color, about people being killed with albinism. One of the witch doctors who is highlighted in the film lived just a few kilometers from where we were showing the film that night. And so there's a team doing advocacy work there, going to all of the villages where there's been attacks or killing, setting up a giant movie screen and opening up the conversation and saying, hey, in this culture, let's change the way that we think and interact with people, uh, with, people with albinism. And so it was amazing to me just to go right into the heart of this and see whole communities uh, come together to learn and discuss and express there some of their confusion and some of their support to see change come to their country. And so the advocacy part was a huge part of uh, what we were doing when we were there for a few weeks. And then the second part that Under the Same Sun is about is working in the area of education. Because historically, if you think about it, whenever minority peoples have moved from the margins into the center of society, it's often been because they've taken meaningful places of leadership in that culture. In business, in education, in politics, and in uh, many different sectors of society. So there's been a push over the last number of years with UTSS to see kids educated in schools. And one of the activities we did was we went and visited these schools, both government schools where the conditions are pretty rough, and then uh, English middle schools in the Mwanza region where uh, there's about 300 kids who are receiving an education uh, as a result of the work and sponsorship of the uh, programs that UTSS has. And so it was just phenomenal to be there and to sit with these kids. It's an integrated school environment. And so they're learning side by side with kids without albinism how to interact. They're learning um, English. And so we were doing low vision exams for them, checking their skin, helping them understand uh, and, and one thing we got uh, a real privilege to do was to introduce hockey to these schools. So I have no idea if it's going to take off or not. It's tough to figure out a sport that kids with low vision can participate in. But we have big oversized tennis balls and big vests so they could see the other teams and uh, And Brady and Peter and Debbie are going to go back in July and make sure that the rules are being adhered to and see if we can get some refereeing going on. But uh, just to see these kids kind of engaging and, and coming alive as they get an education, which is an investment in their future, an investment in the future of changing the face of the country of Tanzania. And so my purpose in going was I was there to see how we as a community here at Jericho Ridge and beyond could engage and stand together with our brothers and sisters with albinism in Tanzania for justice and for peace, and to consider how we could move this information from our heads into our hearts and work together so we could be a part of, Lord willing, seeing a day when the discrimination in Tanzania and other parts of the world is a faint and distant memory. One of the things that I think I'm still wrestling with just having been back for a week and I'm going to wrestle with for a while, is that this is really going to be a long, long uphill fight. And I think Psalm 10 gives voice to that reality. And so look with me at Psalm 10, verse 1. It says, Lord, you look at the world, you look at situations like that and others that you might be familiar with, and you say, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I am in trouble? The wicked arrogantly hunt down the poor. Let them be caught in the evil that they plan for others. They brag about their evil desires. They praise the greedy and they curse the Lord. The wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think God is dead. Yet they seem to succeed in everything that they do. They do not see your punishment waiting them. They sneer at their enemies and they think nothing bad's ever going to happen to us. We'll be free of trouble forever. Their mouths are full of cursing lies and threats and trouble and evil are on the tips of their tongue. And when I was getting ready to go to Tanzania, verse 8 to verse 11 just came back to me over and over and over again. I read it almost every day. They lurk in ambush in the villages, waiting to murder innocent people. They're always searching for helpless victims. Like lions, crouched in hiding, they wait to pounce on the helpless. Like hunters, they capture the helpless and drag them away in nets, and their helpless victims are crushed. They fall beneath the strength of the wicked. The wicked think, God isn't watching us. He has closed his eyes. He won't even see what we do. One of the stories that captured my heart and those verses to me was the story of a child named Adam. And Adam's the boy in the the bottom right uh, of this photo. And Adam's story and his experience were that uh, he was out looking after his uh, family's cows a little ways away from his house out in the village. And he came across a man uh, with a machete. And the man said to him, Oh, uh, Adam, why don't you uh, take your cows over to this field over here? There's much better grass for your field over here. And this man was unknown to Adam. And Adam said, "Uh, No thanks. Uh, I think he did what his, you know, every good child who's had the lecture from their parents of talking to strangers. did what every child would do. said, no thanks, I'm going to go home now. So started with his cows back down the path to his house. And the man with the machete fell in line right behind him. So Adam picked up his pace a little bit and walked. And, and the man kept saying, why don't you come over here? There's great guy. Uh, bring your cows over here. This is like, this field is a great field for your cows. Your parents would be so happy. You know, if you cows could just get in this field over here. And Adam just kept going and was able to make it back home, and this man just followed him right into his family little compound. And Adam says to his parents, this guy is following me. Like, you deal with this. And his mom says, why don't you go get some more firewood? And Adam said to his mom, well, Mom, I, we have lots of firewood. Like, there's a pile right here. I, I don't know. I, I don't think we need any more firewood. And Adam's mom says, no, go get some more firewood. So he goes outside. To get some more firewood, and the man with the machete follows him. Adam's only nine. Man overpowers him, takes him to a shed in his family's home, and begins to attack him with the machete. And the man succeeded in cutting off the thumb and the finger on Adam's right hand before Adam was able to bite him and run away. And as he ran away, he runs towards his home and his parents are standing there in the doorway of his family home, just steps away from this shed. Complicit in the whole experience. Knowledgeable of what's going on. They had sent, this is his brother, older brother Salam, And they'd sent his older brother who was always with him to watch over him and protect him. They'd intentionally sent his brother to an uncle's house that night because they knew and were part of what was going to happen. And when I sat in that room and I heard Adam tell his story and heard his brother just weep for him that he wasn't there to protect his brother through that experience, I had a use for the imprecatory Psalms. I had a use for Psalm chapter 10, verses 12 to 18, which says, Arise, O Lord. And punish the wicked, O God. Do not ignore the helpless. Why do the wicked get away with despising God? They think God will never call us to account. You know, in this situation in Tanzania, there have been people that have been arrested. There have been people that have been put on trial for it. But no one has ever been done anything except for a little slap on the wrist and put in jail for a little while. Entire culture is oriented in such a way that justice has been delayed and forgotten. And so the wicked think they can get away with despising God. But you, O Lord, see the trouble and the grief that they cause. You take note of it and punish them. The helpless put their trust in you. You defend the orphans. You break the arms of these wicked, evil people. Go after them until the last one is destroyed because the Lord is king forever and ever. The godless nations will vanish from the land. Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you'll hear their cries and comfort them. You will bring justice to the orphans and to the oppressed so that mere people can no longer terrify them. See, I used to read Psalm 10 as an intellectual curiosity, an intellectual exercise or theological exercise. But now when I read about God going after these people, I think about Adam's attacker. I think about even his parents who were complicit in that attack. I think about the others that we met. Kulwa and Beatrice, who both lost an arm in an attack. And when I read about mere people terrifying the helpless, I think about the screenings of the film that unmask these witch doctors as charlatans and evil crooks who prey on their helpless victim and their clients further up the chain who have ordered these things. And I cry out with the psalms, how long, O Lord, is this going to have to go on? I think that prior to the middle of May, I could have even heard the stories and sat back and said, wow, it's good for Don. It's good for Peter and UTSS. Like, I'm really glad they're involved in this. That's, That's above my pay grade. That's pretty intense stuff. But now, having been there and seen what I've seen and met the people whom I've met and been privileged to meet, that stuff can't just reside in my head anymore it instantly makes a journey into your heart. And that moves me then to a place of action. And so I want to invite you as a community to consider joining me in a few points of action. The one thing might be just getting informed because if the information isn't in your head, then it can't move into your heart in any way. So maybe for you, part of your journey would just be learning more about albinism, learning more about persons with albinism in Tanzania, maybe visiting with Dawn at the booth, uh, coming and talking to me, maybe uh, watching that film, White and Black. We've got some copies here today. Maybe uh, it's a person that you know that has a disability of some kind, and maybe you need to grow in the information and in your support of them and the struggles and victories that they face day to day, but if you're particularly interested or vested in the stories of people in Tanzania, then you might want to save the 25th of October on your calendar and come and hear their stories in person and meet some of them. Beyond getting informed, maybe the next thing uh, for you might be just taking action. You think, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to fly halfway around the world to Tanzania and. Uh, figure out how I could help Adam? Like, how am I going to help Adam? I don't know. Well, the good news is that Adam's coming to Vancouver this fall because this young man wants to go to school more than anything else in his life. And so UTSS here in Canada has arranged for a high-level team of surgeons to do reconstructive surgery on his thumb and on his forefinger so that he can go to school. That's all he wants to do. So he's going to be here for about three months this fall, coming to Children's to have reconstructive surgery. And so the logistics are all getting worked on to put together. uh, But a couple things that you might want to think about is you know, he'll need some things for us, from us and from a community around him. One thing is just clothes. Remember, he's getting on the plane in Africa with the clothes on his back, and those are not clothes that are great for fall conditions here in the Pacific Northwest. So we're going to need some some clothes, to find some clothes in your closet or your kid's closet or your nephew's closets that are his size. And you can bring him to Jericho Ridge and we can get them to Adam when he comes here in August or early September. And also be nice, you know, he's going to be here for three months. It'd be nice to get him some of the stuff that nine-year-old boys like to do so that he doesn't get bored. Like just simple toys and ways to engage. Maybe um, you've got some context. We need to find him a place to live when he's in rehab. Uh, down at Sunny Hill for, uh, for several months, he and his caregiver. And so it'd be amazing and practical ways just to be able to spring into action and not think about it as, oh, well, you know, I'd have to fly halfway around the world. No, it, there can be simple and concrete ways that we stand with people who are oppressed and the orphans. Well, it's a lot to take in in the course of of a morning, and I'm still processing what I've seen and heard and thinking about, and I'm conscious of maybe one or two things that's going on in your head or in your heart that is voiced in Psalm chapter 9 and 10. And that brings us to maybe one of our takeaways for this morning, because I get it, right? I, I know that our temptation is to live in one of the two extremes. One temptation is when you hear about all the stuff that's going on in the world, Uh, to kind of retreat a little bit or a lot and say, okay, well, um, you know, I see something on TV or I hear what's going on, and it's really hard, and so I just wrap myself up in kind of a little Jesus blanket and say, la, 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 the world is a nice and happy place. God will make it so, Um, you know, God, I'm sure God and other people are looking after others around the world. That's nice. It's fine. You know, he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. The Bible says it will be so. I hope it's true. And if you move too far on this continuum, then you just kind of isolate yourself and say, well, I'm sure God will look after that kind of stuff. Reality's a little bit too harsh or too hard for me. It's a little bit too messy to get involved. I'm not going to watch the news. It's just full of bad news all the time. I'm just going to read my Bible and hope it all goes away. Which isn't helpful. The second extreme on the opposite end is to reject God's promises in light of current realities and look at a situation in Tanzania and say, oh, it's useless. What's God doing? I mean, maybe God doesn't even exist because how could, how could God let that type of stuff happen to somebody? When faced with the harsh realities of our world, it's easy to reject God's promises in light of some of the things that we face. God's promises that he will bring justice to the oppressed and he'll deal with the wicked doesn't even have to be that dramatic. It can be something in your life that you think, I don't know if God's going to do anything about that. I don't know if he could do anything about that. Just dismiss his promises outright. Remember how Psalm 9 forms the counterbalance to Psalm 10. It recounts God's work in the world over and over and forms the counterbalance to that intensity of Psalm 10. And the writer... In doing that is inviting us to hold all of these things, both of these things up together. Because the real challenge in our world and in our lives is to set the contradiction side by side and leave their resolution to God. Like Jared reminded us about last week, there's a tension point. The tension point is that sometimes the greatest danger of knowing things intellectually is we just intellectualize them and don't know them experientially. But there's also a grave danger in just allowing our experiences to inform us and shape our view of reality. And so somewhere in Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, we put those two realities side by each and say God is still in charge of his world even though sometimes it seems like it's out of control. God still cares about your situation, even though sometimes you look at it and think it's completely hopeless. Psalm 9, verse 7 to 10 says, The Lord reigns forever, executing judgment from his throne. He will judge the world with justice. He rules the nations with fairness. The Lord is a shelter for those who are oppressed. He's a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, O Lord, you will not abandon those who search for you. We're going to sing a song that calls us to reflection and action. And the prayer team's available. And you may want to just go and pray for something that you've heard here today. Pray for some of those kids that you've seen. Maybe you want to pray for something that's going on in your own life, a doubt or a struggle that you want somebody to stand with you in and pray about it. Prayer team's available for you also. If you've got doubts and questions and you say, I don't know if God exists, I want to talk to somebody about that. And maybe today is a day where you make a step of faith and confidence and trust in God and say, I might be ready to believe that God exists. He is who he says he is and he rewards those who seek him. He will not abandon those who search for him. Maybe today's your day to search for God in a fresh and new way. So I'm gonna lead us in a prayer and the team will come and lead us in song. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me as I pray. God, we we can become so easily discouraged. I can become so easily discouraged in the face of all that's going on in my life and going on in the world. I can doubt your, your promises are true. I can doubt that you're near me because I don't feel it. I don't experience it in every day. Father, I pray today in this place that you would... We've prayed already. We have sung it already. Holy Spirit, would you come? And so, Father, would you touch our hearts again this morning with the things that are on your heart? A heart for justice, a heart for mercy, a heart to act and not just think and read interesting Psalms and hear interesting stories from the other part of the world. Would you deepen our resolve to move us to be people of action, Father? Not just in cross-cultural settings, but also in our own lives and experiences. Move us to be people who actively listen to you, who actively seek after you, who actively trust you in the midst of our doubts and frailty and confusion. It's tough work. And so we need your Holy Spirit to guide us in that process and to walk with us, because we can't do it alone. And so as we sing, Father, we invite you to come and do in our hearts the things that you alone desire and long to do.